Welcome back to the Dietector Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brett Schur. Today, I'm joined by Marty Kendall. Now, you may know Marty from OptimizingNutrition.com or from Twitter, at MartyKendall2. Marty's another one of these individuals who came from an engineering background and sort of is taking over the world of nutrition. And for him, it was a, a personal start. You know, his wife was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes uh, and more recently his son. But what started with him with his, with his wife was really trying to take his engineering background and his engineering way of thinking and saying, okay, how can we optimize nutrition for my wife who has type 1 diabetes? And that just took him down this whole road of, of nutrition in general and the different sort of beliefs and concepts of nutrition and for him to try and find, again, with his sort of engineering thinking, uh, the way to optimize it for the masses. And he has done a great job mining observational data that exists, whether it's um, MyFitnessPal, which you'll hear us talk about, or from his own website and the thousands of people that have come through his website. And he's using that data to try and help him come up with what he believes is the optimal nutrition strategy. So first and foremost, like, you know, his data is not uh, peer-reviewed, published, randomized controlled trials. And and we talk about that. So we have to be clear about the level of data. But it's something, right? So for someone who wants to help others and use his, uh, his experience to do that, that's what he's trying to do. And his focus is on nutrient density, so high nutrient density, which tends to be higher protein, low energy density, but a lot of these are just sort of vague terms. What do they actually mean? And that's what I try and really kind of focus with him. What does this mean? So that, you know, if you're trying to say, okay, how do I eat a high nutrient density, high protein, low energy density? Does that mean all my calories from protein? Does it mean all my calories from spinach and kale or, or what is it? So it's obviously, you know, a, a combination and we want to talk about the specifics, but also what about keto diets, right? Like, People who eat ketogenic diets find that they are very satiated and their their hunger decreases. So is that then by definition a, a high satiety diet, even though it has high energy high energy density fats, which might go against it? So how does that play into it? So we talk about these concepts to really try and tease out what are the most important factors for people when trying to find a diet that helps them, right? A way of eating that they can stick with long-term and enjoy and not be a burden on their lifestyle and still help them with whatever their goal may be, whether that's healthy weight loss, improving body composition, improving improving your blood sugar, whatever that may be. Because if we're talking about optimization, we always have to say optimizing for what. So based with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this interview with Marty Kendall. All right. Well, Marty Kendall, thanks so much for joining me today on the Diet Doctor podcast. Yeah. Real honor to chat to you, Brett. Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Now, as as we've heard in the in the intro, you came at this from an engineering perspective, with sort of the personal family um, reason to get into nutrition. Mm. But then, sort of applied your engineering mind to say, how can we do this better? And if if I was going to summarize sort of what you landed on, it's basically sort of the concept of nutrient density. Now, yeah. maybe that's too simplistic to put you in that box, but give us an idea of of kind of what nutrient density is why you think it's so important and why it's possibly sort of the unifying um, yeah. the unifying push for healthier nutrition. Yeah, great question. I, I suppose um, there's so much division and derision and controversy and conflict in nutrition. And um, I, I grew up in a Seventh-day Adventist household where belief-based nutrition is sort of the center of everything else. I've seen the, the downsides of that. So as an engineer, it's like how can we quantify nutrition to – look at 
the most important things in nutrition. It's like, well, nutrition should be about nutrients, shouldn't it? And uh, what I've found as we dug into that more and more is that if you prioritize getting the nutrients you need within your energy budget every day, all the other things just work themselves out. You don't have to be worried about excess cholesterol or salt or carbs or fat or being on a plant-based diet or on a carnivore diet or it, it'll just works itself out beautifully and if you start from getting enough nutrients in the food you eat every day uh, all those things just fall into place beautifully so yeah it's a little bit more complex you have to quantify it. you have to say what are the nutrients I'm not getting in my current diet and what foods and meals contain them but uh, when you do that it's just a beautiful thing and I think it can hopefully in the future cut through the, the noise and confusion that's so prevalent in uh nutrition. Yeah. And I love that quote from you. Your diet doesn't need a name or a belief system, just enough nutrients. But yeah. so here's the question though. I mean, there are like thousands of nutrients. So, yep. you know, how do we know which nutrients we, we really need and how to prioritize in the diet? You know, like Robinheimer and Simpson, yep. pr professors Robinheimer and Simpson say there's, I think five or six nutrient hungers that we have and yeah. that's it. But then there are thousands of nutrients. So I guess maybe this is getting into the weeds right away, but how do yeah. you say, okay, these are the important nutrients that we need to optimize to then, as you said, have everything else take care of itself? So Yeah, and it does get a little bit complex, but it depends on your, your context and goals. So, you know, if you're on a plant-based diet, you'll be missing omega-3 and B12 and if you're on a, and potentially all the amino acids. And if you're on a carnivore diet, there are other nutrients that are harder to find. And a lot of people are somewhere in that spectrum, but, Really, I think our bodies have cravings for particular nutrients that we're currently not, not getting enough of. And it makes sense in the wild before we had all this processed food. Um, it would be driven to seek out the nutrients we need. And amino acids like Robinheimer and Simpson talk about are definitely the highest priority. We see the greatest cravings for those uh, amino acids. But after that, you've got potassium and calcium and sodium and we've had the the luxury of having, you know, after running uh, master classes for four years, we've got 125,000 days of data from 35,000 people. And we can see the different, not just the macronutrient responses in terms of how much you eat and uh, per, uh, you know, your amino acids per calorie and how that affects how much you eat but also the, all the essential micronutrients are the vitamins and minerals. And we've identified a sort of an upper limit target, not, not just the recommended minimum to prevent de diseases of deficiency, but a, a sort of an optimum intake that seems to align with the greatest satiety. So we can see, you know, if you're getting six grams of potassium per 2,000 calories, people tend to eat a lot less um, and there's sort of that limit. But when we look at the vitamins, there's definitely that same sort of response. But once you go past a, a certain upper limit target, um, you get into that territory that can only be achieved with supplementation. And we just don't see that same satiety response. So you can't just say, I'm going to take a, a handful of pills and eat the McDonald's. You've got to prioritize the nutrients you need from the food you eat every day. Yeah, interesting. So that suggests that maybe it's not just the nutrients themselves, but it's the other components that come yeah. with those nutrient-dense foods 
that that make the difference. Um, so, uh, and, and when you, and when you get those nutrients from the food you eat, all the other things come along. You know, if you get the essential nutrients from the food you eat, you get all the other beneficial factors that we can't quantify as well yet. So, yeah, and and the nutrient dense diet is definitely a high satiety, lower energy density. All those things come together. But if you quantify, if you optimize for nutrient density, all those other things fall into place. So I've heard you talk about all the data you have, all the observational data you have from the the MyFitnessPal data. So is that what you're referring to with the people who have taken the masterclass, the 125,000 data points you mentioned? Is that the, the MyFitnessPal data I've heard you talk yeah, about? Yeah, no, no. We initially got um, half a million days of MyFitnessPal data that we mined. And four years ago, we created a, a app web-based program called Nutrient Optimizer that pulls in data from people's chronometer accounts. So... Um, people have done our challenges. We've just got this massive data set that we can mine to look at how to uh, macro and micronutrients align with satiety and what's a reasonable target to, to get. Because to be honest, the, the minimum uh, RDIs, et cetera, are, the science is still very young. So, yeah, we, we want to see, hey, what's the upper limit target that aligns with satiety that's achievable with whole food? Um, so people are, are, are targeting the the optimal nutrient intake rather than the minimum to prevent diseases of deficiency and death. Okay, yeah. So that so the observational data is so obviously not a randomized yeah. controlled trial with no. twenty year follow up. But who can do that nutrition <laughs> anyway, right? Especially with five hundred thousand data samples, yeah. that's not going to happen in a nutrition yeah. study, unfortunately. Exactly. So exactly. so sort of data mining, as you called it, uh, the observational data is sort of the best we can do to point us mm. in the right direction. But you mentioned you mentioned um, nutrient density and how evolution of sort of nutrient density we would we would be we would survive better if we were drawn towards nutrient dense foods. But interestingly, I think the same can be said for energy dense foods because mm. you know we evolved in a time where mm. energy was at a premium. But yeah. now that's sort of been flipped on its head. So now yeah. we have to sort of undo our evolution and still totally. focus on the energy density. I'm sorry, the nutrient density. Yep. while minimizing the energy density. So the, some of the most nutrient-dense foods are like organ meats and nuts, but mm. my guess is you probably wouldn't promote those as much. So tell us about that balance between nutrient density and energy. Yeah, um, yeah, and definitely over time, over evolution, we've optimized for energy because energy was hard to get and everything we could find contained a ton of nutrients. But today, over the last 50 years, with fossil fuel fertilizers and, and large agricultural farming practices, we've solved that problem. We've reversed the problem. Now we've got this excess of energy without enough nutrients because we're just growing our food so quickly that it now contains very little nutrients. So we have to eat a lot more to get that. So, yeah, we reverse that and we can say, well, if you, if you want the nutrients with less calories or with within your calorie budget, here are the foods that you can prioritize to get them. And yeah, and organ meats definitely are a part of the picture, but they provide a ton of B vitamins and vitamin A and the like. And but it doesn't take much of liver to to get heaps of vitamin A and blow your uh, your target. And then okay, you've got heaps of vitamin A. What are you going to eat next to get those other nutrients that you still need to prioritize? So it's a continual game of um, in the masterclasses, people just say, hey, I, I tried liver, I got all my vitamin A, now I need to prioritize omega-3 or, or B12 or those other nutrients that are harder to find. So you continually move around the, the, 
the landscape of foods that you can possibly get to get those nutrients. And it's just a, a fun game of gamified nutrition to, uh, and people get really competitive and slightly obsessive about it. And all of a sudden they're going, oh, like, how can I eat all this food? It's a massive amount of food. Cause, um, and I'm just so satiated. I can't overeat this food. I'm, I'm, I feel satiated at a cellular level. I've heard a lot of people say, and, and the, the, the cravings of uh, satiated. That's, that's interesting that you say you gamified it and so many people really enjoy it and make a yeah. competition out of it. Now I can see there's a subset of the population that would go for that. And then yeah. I think there's a pretty significant part of the population that would hate that. And they yeah. just want, they don't want it to be so complicated, right? Because it yeah, sounds yeah, totally. like it could be complicated. I need this for my vitamin A. I need this for my B6. I need this for my B12. I need this, you know, and it's like, yeah. ah, just tell me something <laughs> simple, right? So, yeah. so how do you simplify it as well for the for the crew that just wants the easy answer? Yeah, and that's been the quest for the last five years or so is to say, okay, we've we've got the the upper echelon of food if you want to dial in all your micronutrients, but then we've got the and that's in the micros masterclass, and then we've got a macros masterclass, which is a lot simpler just to get enough protein without excess energy. But then we've created like 70 food lists of optimized for different goals and conditions and then a bunch of recipe books um opt, uh nutri booster recipe books with 600 recipes that contain more nutrients per calorie tailored for different goals because not everybody wants to lose weight not everybody needs a a lower carb keto diet for type 1 diabetes blood sugar control there are different goals and different contexts and different preferences so we've sort of tried to say you know if you want to if you want to eat a plant-based diet that's great but you've got to get the nutrients you need within that constraint ideally you want to take out all the constraints and just eat the foods that contain the most nutrients but uh, if, if you want to have a, a meat-based diet or a pescatarian diet here is the short list of recipes that'll provide more of those nutrients for you but yeah definitely there's a whole spectrum of people that some people want to take it the upper echelon and some people just want to go tell me what to eat give me some recipes and we've tried to cater for all of those extremes yeah and and i think the other thing that we can say well if we're putting people into buckets right like either you want it simple mm. or you want it you want to mm. gamify it well we can put people like me and people like you in buckets, right? Like, are you the low carb guy or are you the, probably people would say you're the protein guy or you're the energy density guy or you're the calorie guy, right? Like, mm. they can put you in a bucket like that. So let's go through some of those though, because, you know, uh, we'll get to the calorie part, you know, calories in, calories out versus others. But before we get to that, that's just a little teaser. Before we get to that, let's talk about protein because protein's yep. a big one, right? And and you've said that our hunger for protein, our, our craving for protein is is the is the biggest is the biggest yeah, driver definitely does that come from your uh, my fitness pal data from your masterclass data are you referring to the protein leverage hypothesis like what do you use as the evidence to really say protein is the f yeah all, all of the above basically they all align um robin homer and simpson's protein leverage hypothesis the half million days of my fitness pal data and the nutrient optimizer data taken from chronometer all indicate that when we get a higher percentage of protein, we tend to eat less calories. But that I saw a, an article you did recently looking at um, Kevin Hall's work in looking at more protein definitely doesn't lead to greater satiety. But that's the thing you can't get more protein from butter and bacon and and the nuts. You have to get 
enough protein without excess energy from fat and carbs. So it's really a, a process of saying, where are you now? And how can we dial back the excess energy from fat or carbs? So your protein percentage increases and you tend to increase your protein intake a little bit, but it's the calories coming back out from the fat and carbs that really lead to greater satiety per calorie. And I think that that's a subtlety that we've tried to communicate again and again that is often lost to people going, you know, I'm eating all this protein, but protein typically comes with fat, especially if you come from a low-carb keto background. So it's like, okay, how do we dial out the, the fat in your diet so the fat from your body can be used? Now, there's, there's also some big misunderstanding about high protein, higher protein, and pushback against mm. what it means. So, you know, if the RDA is 0.8 grams per kilogram, does that make 1.2 grams per kilogram a higher protein <laughs> diet? Or the average American's eating 14% protein. So is a 20% protein a high protein diet? Or yeah. some people are going to envision 40% protein or two grams per kilo. Like that's high protein diet. So when you say Protein is the most important. We have to get enough protein and our, our hunger for protein is the highest for satiety. What numbers, what range, like what do you envision to help people define what high protein is? Yeah, and, and that is a really good question and something that's hard to answer because if you're a you're a bulking bodybuilder doing a whole lot of resistance training, you'll need a ton of protein. Your body will crave a ton of protein and you're probably already eating a ton of protein because your body will be craving that. And if you want to lean out, then it's just a matter of dialing back the, the carbs and fat while still prioritizing the protein. But similarly, the majority of the population are down at you know, 12%, 15% protein. And for them, just dialing back the carbs and fat and nudging themselves up a little bit in terms of how much protein in grams they eat is the way to increase satiety. So what we do in the Macros Masterclass is say, what are you currently eating? And let's tweak that a little bit so you make sustainable progress. And I see you know, Ted's been coming out, out talking about the PE diet and people go, okay, I need to, I need to go 60% protein. And then three days later, it's like, I just can't live this way. I need energy. And your body craves energy and they fall off the wagon and they're face down in the donuts a couple of days later because your body needs enough energy. And it's just a matter of, you know, that's what optimizing is about. It's like, where are you now? And how can we tweak it just a little bit to move towards your goals at a sustainable rate? So you're not just making progress for a week, but a month and six months and 12 months. And after, you know, a couple of years, it's great to see people sustaining that because they've found a new way of eating that's just progressively changed from what they started with to a better diet, not optimal all the time because you can't live at optimal but if you know where optimal is you can move in that direction I, th I think that's something that we just need to clarify so much when we talk about high protein or more protein or higher protein is yeah. where do you start and where you're going and and where the data says the sweet spot is because i think if we look at the protein leverage data from professors robin hyman and, and simpson that it seems like around like the 21 to 25% of calories is sort of where like the sweet spot is for the biggest impact. But there's still sort of a benefit as you go further. It's just the curve sort of flattens is how I interpret it. Yeah. But also percentage isn't usually the best way to talk about things. I prefer, you know, cal or grams per kilo. So yeah. 
I'm just curious. Do you agree that uh, that the data sort of suggests that 21 to 25 percent range is where the sweet spot is, or would you push it even higher? Or? Yeah, I mean, uh, our average in uh, for optimizers is about 28 percent, and people who push towards 40 percent tend to see a better satiety response. But getting above 40, 40 to 50 is hard to maintain. Over 50, nutrient density starts to drop off, and you're cutting out everything other than chicken breast and protein powder and egg whites and the like and people can't live like that forever so we just say <laughs> hey if you're, on, if you're on 20 let's get to 25 percent um if you're on 25 let's get to 30 and just see how that goes and uh tweak as you require to keep moving forward so this is the data from your own group that you've collected yeah yeah we've, we've been running a running a macros masterclass for four years and it just works every time and and People get just confused with that high protein, low protein, high fat, low low fat, high carb, low carb. What does that mean? What's your context? What are your goals? Are you a raging type 2 diabetic who really needs to drop your carbs? But most people we find often come from the keto or low carb background and their blood sugars are quite stable and they're not oscillating too much and they don't need to worry about carbs so much. It's about you know, prioritizing protein, dialing back the fat, and then the satiety kicks in and they don't need to worry about carbohydrates. Yeah. So I also want to talk about this term satiety, which we've been talking a lot about at Diet Doctor yep. lately, but it can mean different things to different people. And actually the way we use satiety sort of combines appetite and satiety and satiation and sort of combines all those mm. things. But you know, people have prime examples all the time. Okay. So high fiber, low energy density foods are satiating. But mm. if I have a big salad of spin, you know, a big spinach salad, I'm hungry 20 minutes later. Totally. Or protein satiating food. But if all I eat is chicken breast, I'm like starving at my meal and I need something more. So how do you sort of educate people about the terms of satiety, the short term, the medium term, the long term, bringing that together? Like, how do you like to speak about satiety in those yeah, I mean, you talked about satiation and satiety, and satiation I see as the short-term response to food. And like you said, if you eat a big, uh, you know, bowl of salad, it's really hard to overeat those foods. But two, three hours later, your body's craving more food, and and you're just eating over and over again all day. But if you're getting all the nutrients you need, like our data is on a day-to-day -day basis, so we look at the daily intake of protein and micronutrients that align with greater satiety, which is sort of the long-term response that your body's got the protein, enough fat, enough carbs, enough micronutrients that you need to get you through the whole day, not just one meal. And definitely we find, like I did an analysis of energy density and Ted was talking a little bit about energy density and I dove into the data and a lower energy density really does help with satiation but if you look at it from a you know we dove in and looked at the linear regression analysis for the, the the big picture data and it's really the the protein and the micronutrients more than the the energy density having the the, the larger effect and larger impact so once you get the protein and you know uh, fiber you don't need to worry about the the energy density as much okay so then when we talk about energy density, satiety per calorie, protein without the excess calories that can come along with it in the form of fats and carbs. 
that's when people say, so is it all about calories? It's just about reducing calories. What about hormones? What about insulin? And of course, satiety hormones being another version of hormones. So mm. what do you think about that sort of battle between calories versus macros and hormones? And are hormones and insulin important when you're trying to talk about satiety, weight loss, healthy weight loss, formulating a diet that works for you? Yeah. Um, hormones other than insulin, like even insulin is really hard to quantify. So it's really hard to speak definitively about it. And I think like I'm married to a type one diabetic and I've been looking at her blood sugars and insulin for 20 years. My son became type one diabetic in December. So it's like, I've got two CGMs on my screen all the time watching how their food, uh, you know, their insulin and blood sugars respond live to um, all the food they eat and the stress and the sleep. But what I've come to understand is that, you know, the biggest biggest driver of insulin is just body weight. How big are you? How much does your liver, your pancreas need to hold in storage? And that the bigger you are, the more your insulin needs to ramp up. Um, and your basal insulin is like 70 to 80% of your daily insulin requirement on a, especially on a low carb diet. So if you want to recruit, reduce your insulin, you need to focus on high satiety, nutrient-dense foods that will enable you to eat in a way that allows you to reduce your body weight. Um, and the little blip after you eat is really inconsequential in the big picture to the insulin. I mean, you don't want your blood sugars going really high and then crashing because it's that crash when your appetite ramps up and you want to eat anything and everything. So you want to keep your blood sugars in a reasonably stable range of rising maybe less than 30 milligrams per deciliter after you eat, but trying to flatline your blood sugar by dropping all carbs out and prioritizing a whole lot of fat. You might have stable blood sugars, but they're elevated, your insulin's elevated, and you're still over fat because you're eating too much dietary fat for your body to use your body fat. Yeah, I think that's a good point about about using the CGMs. We have a whole CGM guide at yeah. Diet Doctor, but that is a common thing that when people put on a CGM, it's like a game to keep it as flat as possible. Yeah, and it's the wrong goal. Yeah, I, th I think you're right that flat's not necessarily the right goal, but still important that you said, you know, the, the little blips don't matter as long as they are little blips. It's when yeah. they're rising to, you know, 180 and staying or even 150 and staying there for two hours or something. That's yeah, no longer totally. a little blip. So it's, it's sort of shrinking the, the spikes and lowering the spikes, yep. but not having a flat line is normal to have reactions to. Yeah. Um, so is that, so I guess we can transition then to your data driven fasting, which yep. uses exactly that, right? CGMs. It's, it's using CGMs and blood sugar to dictate when and how to eat. So give us a little yeah. more uh, information about that. Yeah. After watching blood glucose for 20 years and, and seeing the, fasting for longer is better sort of mentality that um, was really prevalent. I was like, oh, let's, let's back back from the ledge here because people were just fasting for days at a time and then eating keto, uh, you know, to keep the insulin low at the end, which means they're downing the whatever low carb, even low protein food, believing they're keeping their insulin low. But at that point, they're getting a low nutrient density, not a lot of protein, and their blood sugars might be stable, but uh, they're not getting a lot of nutrients when they eat again. So um, using just even, you don't need a CGM, you can use a simple 
glucometer to measure your blood sugar before you eat and we track your premium blood sugar before you eat for three days and take the average of that um, and then in the following days you just try to wait until you get a little bit below that point to eat again so rather than fasting for days at a time you're eating one two three four times a day when you need to based on using your blood sugar as a fuel gauge to to guide your eating and that just works really nicely and it, it and like you said the the big large long-term blood glucose rise is bad but that's typically due to the fat and protein together the, the uh, sorry fat and carbs together with low protein and low fiber so it all sort of works together really nicely um, that if you prioritize protein and fiber with less fat and carbs you tend to um, return to baseline quicker you're more satiated per calorie and um, yeah that using your blood glucose as a fuel gauge just works really nicely to to guide people when they actually need to eat does it matter how insulin resistant somebody is when you're using glucometer to to sometimes well i'll just leave it there yeah does that matter uh, no, um, it works really, really real well for people with type 2 diabetes to, to bring it down as long as they're not, the medications aren't messing it up. Obviously, if they're taking exogenous insulin, they need to moderate that and dial that back a little bit. But um, it works whether you've got high blood sugars or, or really low healthy blood sugars. Most people we have come into the programs that have a, a lower blood sugar in what would be considered a fairly normal healthy range. But as they chase a slightly lower blood sugar before each meal, um, they just, you know, it, it works and, and the blood sugars continue to lower and uh, it, it's a guide to when and how much to eat without having to track calories, which like you said before, nobody wants to track the food really. And it can be informative for a little while, but most people don't want to track their food for very long. Yeah, so we keep coming back to that term calories. And so, yep. you know, people don't want to track their calories. People don't want to worry about calories. And want to know that there's more than just calories, right? Not all calories are the same. There's more than just calories. And keto is usually used as sort of the best example of that um, yep. because you don't, it's sort of like the natural satiating diet where almost uniformly the first reaction is, wow, I'm not hungry anymore. Yeah. Wow, I, I didn't have to eat four meals today. I only ate two and didn't even think about it. So then when people come and say, well, high satiety diet means lowering um, the high energy density fats that can be very prevalent with keto. There yep. seems to be sort of a disconnect there. Well, wait a second. How am I so satiated on keto if I'm eating the wrong, quote unquote, you know, foods <laughs> for high satiety? So how do you sort of integrate those two approaches? Yeah, that, that, that's definitely a big deal. But um, you've got to un understand and ask why are people more satiated on keto? I mean, we talked about before that the the big blood sugar roller coaster can be a big deal if their blood sugars are going up and then crashing the appetite increases when their blood sugar crashes but really when most people lower carbohydrates they end up eating more protein and they get out of that fat plus carb danger zone of you know 40 to 50 percent fat and 40 to 50 percent carbs that our entire food system is made of all the all the foods in the center of the supermarket of those foods that we just can't stop eating um, and as they lower carbohydrate they tend to eat more protein which i think is having the satiety effect of, of keto but uh, you know 
keto is such a, a broad, ill-defined term, unfortunately. You know, is it a therapeutic ketogenic diet where you need to get you know, upwards of you know three millimolar by eating very low protein and eighty to ninety percent fat, or is it a, a lower carb diet with adequate protein? It's just you know what does keto mean? And I think it's come to mean a lot of things to a lot of people, and that's where quantifying things a little bit more to say are you getting enough protein without excess fat so you can use your body fat for fuel is uh, a little bit more useful okay yeah that makes sense so it's nothing sort of against keto itself and there are different versions of keto like you said and and keto can be very satiating diet and mm. there are versions of keto that can be high satiety per calorie as well yeah. certainly have to dial down all that all the added fat in order to do it and um, I think that is interesting that keto means so many different things uh, to different people because it yeah. used to be sort of thought of as, I guess, back in the epilepsy days, there was one keto. And then there was sort of Atkins, which was a, a, mm. a much, I guess, higher protein version. And then it sort of is transitioning to now sort of like a mix of three or four different <laughs> of, of ketogenic diets, I guess it, you could it, say. It's such a big umbrella that, you know, what does it mean? Is it, are the ketones coming from your body or are they coming from the three bulletproof coffees you had? I mean, the, the different diets. Yeah. Yeah. Now, but you can have a high satiating diet. That's a meat-based diet, a keto diet, yep. a plant-based diet. So I guess that's one of the interesting things about high satiety is that it can or eating towards satiety, mm. it can fit with any sort of uh, dietary framework. So yeah. of your group that you see the most success in, do you see them fall into any sort of pattern of eating meat, not eating meat, Mediterranean, you know, whatever they sort of define things as. And as I know you said, a diet doesn't need to have a name, but I'm just <laughs> I'm curious if you've noticed any patterns with that in your group. Yeah, I'm typically just an omnivorous diet that includes plants, meat, and seafood. Um, seafood is incredibly nutrient-dense, but a lot of people don't enjoy it or they can't get it or they don't like it. So, um, yeah, definitely lean seafood is incredible. Um, and people get, you know, once they chase nutrient density, they're getting a, a ton of protein, a ton of meat and veggies, but on a plate, it looks like a massive amount of, of veggies. It looks like it's all veggies, but really the majority of the calories is still coming from the, the protein-containing foods. Correct. Because those veggies are so low energy. Yeah. yeah, you might you might have 40 percent protein, but it looks like a massive amount of veggies. And they go, how do I eat all this? And it's like, yeah, well, that's how it's designed. Is once you prioritize nutrient density, those foods are incredibly satiating and, and hard to overeat. So, so one other thing that confuses, I think, a lot of people when it comes to satiety is that a a boiled baked or just a regular plain baked potato is one satiating foods. Mm. At least according to some published papers. Yeah. That that's like always up there near the top. And a lot of people find that confusing. Now, is it because when they think baked potato, they think, you know, bacon and sour cream and butter? <laughs> or is it because baked potatoes by themselves just aren't that exciting and you're not going to want to eat more? So how do you separate palatability from satiation? And so how do you approach sort of that concept? Yeah, um, there was the whole satiety uh, index work that they did back in 1997 at the University of Sydney that did find that the boiled potato, it was actually cooked and cooled, so it probably had resistant starch in it that provided the most satiety. But 
when most people eat potatoes, they're eating it with oil or butter or you know, the potato chip with oil and potato together is incredibly hyper palatable. Um, but the fact is that most people can't live on only potatoes. They gravitate, they go, I need energy. I need energy from somewhere. So they gravitate back to that. Let's add some butter to this and oil and cook in a bit of oil. And then the satiety decreases. But um, we definitely see once you get over 50, 60% carbohydrate, people tend to eat less. It's that, you know, 40 to 50% carbohydrate that is hyper palatable and easy to overeat. And the, there's a decrease in calorie intake once people get to 50, 60% carbs, but very, very, very few people actually maintain that very, very high carbohydrate intake, at least in our data from, you know, across a wide range of dietary approaches. It just doesn't happen in real life that people maintain that high carbohydrate with very, very low fat at the same time. So let's go back to the baked potato for a second, because when you when you add oil and fat and butter and yep. bacon, you said the satiety decreases. But does the does the satiety truly decrease or is it the satiety per calorie ah, that decreases? Yeah. And is it the same same satiety at a higher calorie level? Or does something actually happen with that combination to make you truly feel less full and, and, and hungrier? Yeah, I mean, think of it in nature. In, um, in, in summer, you'd have the carbohydrates. In winter, you'd have more fat and you get a dopamine response from having, I got the energy from carbs or I got the energy from fat. And there's been some fascinating studies that show that when you combine carbs and fat together, you get a super additive dopamine response that drives you to, you know, eat more of those foods. So we're really willing to pay for a lot more of those hyper palatable fat and carb combo foods that we can't stop eating. So it's just a dopamine drive um, from a, a very rare signal that only really happens in autumn where you get fat and carbs together that tell the body that hey we need to prepare for winter winter's coming we need to get fat so if you're eating those foods the you've talked about high fructose foods as well um you know it's those combo foods that drive um hyperphagy that we, we just can't stop eating now of course evolution we've come with ultra processed foods as well to uh <laughs> to just worsen our, our metabolic health. And you mentioned Kevin Hall earlier, and mm. he had a, a study showing if you compared similar diets that were tempted to be matched for macros mm. and calories where the only difference was um, the level of processing that people who ate the high processed foods, 500 calories more. Um, so when you see something like that, what do you think it is about the processing or do you truly still think it's the, the combination of carbs and fat and salt and all that together and it just kind of didn't show up in that trial that it was uh, that combination? Yeah, definitely even protein powder is a processed food, so it's less satiating than the whole you know, meat and eggs and, and seafood. So if you can, you should try to eat less processed foods that are – um, your body needs to do more processing to digest them and they'll provide greater satiety. So don't drink your calories, minimally processed foods, whole food grown in uh, you know a happy, regenerative, vibrant ecosystem that's good for you and good for the planet. Switch gears for a second. Why do people not succeed? with Like if someone says, I'm going to follow a higher protein, low energy density diet that's nutrient dense, 
I'm going to give it a try. What do you see as the biggest hurdles for long-term success that people have? Yeah, um, I think with a high protein percentage, they just jump to extremes and they go, I wasn't full, I wasn't satisfied because you went from a 10% protein keto diet to a 60% protein diet and your body just says, hey, I can't get the energy I need from the protein quick enough. You, you can convert protein through gluconeogenesis to, to glucose, but it's a very rate limited process. So your body just says, hey, give me the give me the real carbohydrates. I need energy now um, that are available quickly. So it's like find where you are now and dial it up just a little bit. And if you get progress, great. Keep doing what you're doing. If you don't get progress or you stop getting progress, dial it up just a little bit more. Go from 25 to 30 and then 35 to 40. And if you're at 40% protein over the long term, consistently week on week it's hard hard to go wrong so do you think that's sort of for you and and what you've seen in your group that 40 percent is sort of the would you say it's the 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 goal to get to or the maximum to not go above like how would you um i'd say 50 percent's a a maximum not to go above and you see with the protein spraying modified fast long-term trials people lose weight incredibly rapidly but two years later they haven't learned to eat so they're back at the normal weight again because they they went on this crash diet and fell off a cliff and then they were on shakes and meal replacements and, and things they wouldn't eat in normal life. And then they haven't learned to eat properly. So, you know, take what you're currently eating, add a few more nutrient dense, whole high protein percentage foods, and that'll automatically, you'll drop out the less optimal foods. And then once you've reached a goal, bring back a bit more energy from the fat and carbs and you'll be able to sustain it. And then once your weight starts to drift up, you just tweak it a little bit. I think that's where people go wrong is just going from one extreme to another. And, you know, social media, you know, that it gets clicks, the controversy gets clicks and the high protein, low protein. And it's just the the extremism drives me crazy. And uh, yeah, it, it doesn't help most people get a sustainable diet that helps them keep moving forward. Yeah, and that's why when I hear 40 or 50% protein, I, I actually get nervous when I hear that because I think, oh boy, people are going to struggle with that. Like, Because if they do try and jump to that, it's going to be a struggle because uh, everything changes about the diet, the mm. way it tastes, the, the textures, mm. the way it feels. And I think it is too big of a, a jump. And, yeah. and maybe that's got something to do with why you know a lot of the data suggests that 20 to 25 is sort of like the, the sweet zone for so many people. Yeah. But interesting that your data can show you know continued improvement as you go higher. But we have to be honest, it's sort of a self-selected population that you're yeah. working with. So is there a population that you would say, ah, maybe you shouldn't do this? You shouldn't increase your protein past 30%. You shouldn't you know, be focusing too much on, on higher protein. Is there a population in, in your mind that says, ah, maybe not? Um, not, not really. I suppose if you start <laughs> with that caveat of where are you now and move up a little bit from where you, where you are now. And I mean, the the bodybuilders and people who are really active might need a lower protein percentage because they need to fuel, you know, like an athlete, a triathlete, a triathlete is going to lead, need a lower protein percentage diet because they need to fuel with so much energy to support that activity. But it's often the, the menopausal, you know, middle-aged ladies who do the best on, a, you know, dialing their, their diet up to 40% protein because they're eating so few calories. They need to get enough protein and, and once they dial back the calories there are uh, the protein percentage is quite high 
Okay. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, just lowering your take protein stable naturally raises yeah. protein percentage. So if yeah. we're talking about protein percentage, and that's different than talking about grams per kilo as well. Totally. All right. So now let's switch to from what we're eating to when we're eating. Yep. So we, we already talked about fasting a little bit, but more about the the um the timing of eating. Mm. When in America it's very much dinner is your big meal. You're gonna skip a meal now for time restricted eating. A lot of people are purposely skipping breakfast, mm. um, having a regular lunch and a big dinner. And Europe or like the Mediterranean, at least my understanding is, you know, a sort of a late lunch is kind of the big meal and then a very small dinner. I don't know how it is in Australia, but with the data that you've been able to find, what do you think is is sort of the best in terms of timing for satiety? So not just necessarily weight loss, but for actually satiety, having the diet, a nutrient density diet, prioritizing protein and lower energy density, having the best effect, what type of timing works? Yeah, great question. Um, I suppose in the in the data driven fasting, what we do is you know find your pre meal blood sugar that works for you. And a lot of people with insulin resistance, dawn phenomenon, see their blood sugar elevated in the morning. So initially they start to wait a little bit longer, so it pushes that first meal back. But you get to a point where if you push it back too far at dinner, you're binging, you're overeating, you're hy- uh, you're hyperphagic, you're uh, eating too much at that point. So it's like okay, let's try to bring your last meal back a little bit. And when you do that, your first meal, you get hungrier earlier in the day, your blood sugars are, are lower earlier in the day. But the the magic hack, if people have got elevated blood sugars um, earlier in the day with dawn phenomenon, we say, well, your body, if your blood sugar is elevated, you don't need carbohydrates. You probably don't need fat if you've got a lot of fat on your body to, to use. So let's prioritize nutrients dense, higher protein, higher fiber foods earlier in the day when you start to get hungry. I don't think it matters when that is, but when you start to get hungry initially, try to prioritize protein. And at that point, their blood sugars start to to drop, they're more satiated, and then they can postpone that that next meal to later in the afternoon. And, and yeah, definitely not eating when uh, it's not daylight outside. It is seems to be ideal to constrain it to a like eight to ten hour window. But it's not a eating window where people, you know, my window is open and it's a all you can eat buffet drive through. I'm just going to keep, you know, I'm going to start with peanut butter, then I'm going to have, you know, the chips and everything else because they're the the energy density low satiety foods. You have to say, okay, my blood sugar is low. I need to refuel. What's the best choice for that? And uh, yeah, two or three meals or two meals and a snack seems to work really well when blood sugars indicate that it's time to refuel. And do you think this is tied into a natural circadian rhythm of of ebbing and flowing of insulin resistance, or do you think that's unrelated? Yeah, um, to to a degree, I think insulin tends to be higher overnight. We're designed to store food overnight, so at natural default, if we we're left to our own devices, the the most optimal to store energy in a energy scarce environment for a hunter gatherer might be to eat most of the food later at night but eating earlier in the day prioritizing more food earlier in the day so your blood sugars aren't elevated overnight and your insulin isn't elevated overnight it is a better way to do it instead of having a a balance between plenty of calories earlier in the day and some later in the day versus just, you know, I'm going to have a little meal to get me through the morning and then a massive meal at night that tends to be potentially more stored overnight when your insulin's 
higher and uh, you're more insulin resistant and you're less active. I remember there was a study, they had like a, a snack at 6 p.m. and a meal at 10 p.m. versus a meal at 6 p.m. and a snack at 10 p.m. And I think their, like, their immediate insulin and blood sugar wasn't all that different. But the following morning, it was much mm. higher in the group that had the 10 p.m. meal as opposed to the 6 p.m. meal, which, show, which was interesting because like the initial response was, hey, their blood sugar is basically the same when they go to sleep. Is this really going to be a problem? But it wasn't until the next morning that you really saw the effect. So yeah, I think it, that, that sort of is in line with what you're saying. Interestingly, we see people who eat more fat at night with higher blood sugars in the morning and sometimes, often a, a pre-diabetic insulin-resistant pattern is to have high blood sugars in the morning and lower blood sugars in the afternoon. So it sort of makes sense if you're going to have some carbs in your day to have a little bit in the evening meal, which tends to provide some satiety bring your blood sugars back up and the morning blood sugars are then lower again so that's just a, a typical pattern we see yeah and some people report that they sleep better if they have some mm. carbs with their evening meal as opposed to really prioritizing your carbs in the morning i wonder if that's mm. somehow related i mean that's just one of those things i've never really seen published on but i've seen a yeah. lot of people comment on and i always wondered about that Do you have thoughts about that about yeah if, if you think elevated ketones are really a signal to go out and hunt not lie down and take a nap so you don't really want massively elevated ketones overnight um, and definitely the, the i think it's the serotonin that tends to rise when you get a little more carbohydrate and people do tend to sleep if they have the carbs before they go to bed but it yeah, doesn't make doesn't take a lot of carbs for most people to um to boost the blood sugar back into the healthy range and testing before and after blood sugars helps people to go okay i really didn't need all that rice or sweet potato. A lot of people test their blood sugars after their their carb meal and go, wow, I didn't need that much. I can dial it back. But um, yeah, that's where a little bit of testing can really help define your carb tolerance. Right. Like, I mean, there's a plate of broccoli and cauliflower and Brussels sprouts. Is that enough carbs? <sighs> and for a lot of people, it probably is, right? Yeah. But it depends how active you are. If you're doing a lot of uh, endurance training, then you don't want your blood sugars to be bottoming out overnight because you'll be getting getting up to to raid the fridge again. So yeah, it, it can be useful to to check it, and that's where CGMs can be really fascinating to see how, especially after you've exercised. I see my blood sugar plummet, and uh, you know you, you need more fuel to recover from that activity. Yeah, I think I think this concept of of Gearing your food intake based on your CGM is really interesting. I'd love to see mm. you know more studies done and published about it because th I think there is quite a bit of variability depending on what your baseline diet is. I think that's mm. so important because if you are eating a higher carb diet, I think that's when you're going to have sort of more of the the rises and falls. Uh, as we said, a low carb diet tend, tends to be a little more flat, but doesn't always mm. have to be flat. So I wonder if trying to gauge you're eating based on your CGM, does it matter on your baseline take of carbs? Now, I would think it would. Yeah, yeah, totally. And you'll definitely have more oscillating blood sugars. But you know, the big thing to avoid is the large rise and then the large crash. It's that crash that's the danger zone where you're just you're gravitating to the fat and carb hyperpalatable foods. And you want to avoid that. So you want to dial back your carbs to the point that you've got blood sugars of a, of a normal metabolically healthy person, which is in that, you know, 30 milligrams, 30 to 40 milligrams rise after meals, um, but not pushing it so far that you, you know, 
a lot of people talking about closing your carbs with fat and it's like, well, wait up, fat plus carbs is your donut and uh, and your baked potato and chips. So do we really want to do that if our goal is to lower insulin, improve satiety and, and eat less and lose weight? Yeah. By the way, I appreciate you using uh, talk, speaking in milligrams per deciliter for the glucose <laughs> as opposed to millimoles. Usually, when I talk to people from Australia or from the UK or something, I got oh, I got to do all these conversions in my brain. But you're spot on. I don't have to do any uh, conversions with you. So thank you. I've become, I've become <laughs> bi bilingual in in blood sugar measurements. Yeah, it is, it is a whole language and lipids and, and <laughs> blood sugar. It's a, it's a whole different language for sure. But so, but talking about avoiding the the rises and the falls. I mean, a keto diet is is designed to, to mm. uh, avoid the rises and falls and the a higher protein nutrient dense low energy density diet is designed to sort of mm. in a way avoid those as well so it seems like as long as you're following those principles then you're going to be pretty successful with uh with gauging your cgm is that yeah, what you find uh, as well yeah i suppose that, again it defines on how you define a keto diet as 80 percent fat or 50 percent fat and um yeah the the fat will tend to elevate insulin and blood sugars for a, for a much longer period. And um, the, the testing from the University of Sydney on the food insulin index that's quoted, it's pretty much the only thing we've got from 1997 looking at how much insulin rises after meals. It's only, it's only a three-hour, two- to three-hour period after we eat. So we very, know very little about the, the fat effect. And it seems that over the longer term, you still get an insulin response, but at the same time, the insulin response is lower than carbs because really insulin helps your body store energy. And from you've only got so much room to store carbohydrates. So your body says, hey, let's hold back the energy and storage while we use off this carbohydrate because we can't store it. But when you eat the fat, the insulin response is a lot lower because it's like, hey, we've got plenty of room to store this. We'll uh, in invite you on board. So there's actually less insulin required um, but that insulin response is over a longer time. So, yeah, the fat still does have some insulin response over the longer term and blood sugars. Yeah, sort of a, a less dramatic change but a longer tail of the mm. summarize. Yeah, and when, when people dial back their fat in their meals, they tend to see the blood sugar drop again below their pre-meal trigger a lot earlier so they can eat again sooner once they're dialing back the fat. So it's controlling energy intake by manipulating macronutrients using your blood sugar as a fuel gauge. Well, I really appreciate your, your sort of engineer approach to this and how you, <sighs> you're collecting the data, whether it's the, the MyFitnessPal data or the data with everybody coming through your, your programs um, and, and trying to work, uh, analyze the data to see mm. what works and you know, trying to help people in that way. So mm. I really appreciate that, that approach. And it's really interesting to get someone's experience from that. And that's why I think it's so important that medicine and nutrition is being sort of infiltrated by engineers, so to speak, because it's a, or a physicist or whatever the case may be, right? A more, a more sort of data approach of how we analyze this and how we apply it, which I think is really cool. Um, so if people want to kind of know more about you, obviously there's the optimizingnutrition.com and then on Twitter, um, at Marty Kendall too. So what else is uh, coming next for you and what else can they expect from you? Yeah, I'm just continuing to be fascinated by the data and trying to interpret it and continue to analyze it and, and write about it. So we've got a working with the University of Otago to publish some of this data-driven fasting data, which basically shows that pre-meal blood sugars is, is much more interesting and useful as a guide to when to eat and as a 
indicator of metabolic health and um, doing low carb down under on the Gold Coast in October and um, coming to hang out with you guys in low carb Denver in February. And yeah, so just having a whole lot of fun diving into the data and making a lot of really fascinating contacts and friends. Great. Great. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to low carb Denver. And as we were we're talking a little bit offline, it's it's almost it's not even going to be a low carb conference. Well, I mean, it is a low carb conference, but it's really trying to get out of the the low carb paradigm and talk about mm. nutrition as a whole and the future of nutrition, mm. um, low carb and beyond. So I'm really excited for that and excited yeah. to see you there. See you stateside. Yeah. Really exciting times. Very good. Well, thanks again for joining me. Hey, thanks, Brett.